Before we get started with today's show, I just wanted to let you know that this podcast contains descriptions of sexual assault, and so listen to discretion is advised. All right, now I'm delighted to welcome in joining me Samantha Bunton, the senior NFL analyst from NBC Sports. Samantha, thank you for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Ollie. I wish we could have done this in more fun times than what we're going to have to wade through today. Um, I guess I should just start with your general big picture thoughts on uh, the Watson news that was both sickening and obviously predictable as well, given the way the league has legislated these things over the past 20 years, if not longer. Six games, no fine. What were your kind of general thoughts when you saw the news? I guess I'm disappointed, although not surprised. Um, I, I think that had this been under sort of the old disciplinary rules, which is, I guess, something we can get more in depth on if you want, but, you know, had this been back where Goodell was sort of the end-all, be-all of he will decide the punishment, the league will decide the punishment, we were probably looking at a year's suspension, which felt at the very least more reasonable than what we actually ended up with. But because we're now in this new process where we use the arbiter and the six games, it looks like she kind of sat on the idea of precedent as being about not a precedent for this specific offense, but a precedent for what punishment was for things that kind of existed in this orbit. And because we don't have anything that exactly matches this, it sounds to me like she was erring on the side of caution to stay within the framework of what would be sort of a, I guess, difficult to argue with judgment based on that. But it also, I think, doesn't take into account a lot of things that are really important about this. And and like you said, I mean, it's gross, right? I, that's, I keep wanting to fall back on this like very informal and sort of somewhat angry response of like, this is disgusting. I, six games for this is just absolutely unconscionable. And yet I am not surprised. <laughs> and as you said, we can get through some of the specifics of the report, but just for the listeners at home to be aware, and I'm sure by now they've heard more about the disciplinary officer than they ever thought they would hear in their lives. This is a collectively bargained thing that the NFLPA and the NFL put forward together to try and take away that judge jury thing away from Roger Goodell, even though when you go through the fine print, he still has as much power as he would actually want to have if he wants to appeal this to himself, who would then hear the appeal or, or one of his designees. What was so kind of strange and contradictory about it is she admits the NFL proves their own case. And then, as you said, basically booked back against Goodell and his tenure by saying, I'm just following what you have done previously, which to me, I I thought the point of bringing the arbiter was to remove the Goodell legacy of him ruling those things. Well, right. It sort of creates this idea that the precedent, that any involvement of the word precedent, which has been you know, horrifically misused in, in so many instances uh, re- regarding this. And, and I think a lot of things that are like this, but it, it sort of kicks it back to the whole, well, I have to respect the commissioner's office. You know, this is really all about the shield again. So I'm going to use precedent that is bound by, and, and she uses that term a lot too. So she's sort of indicating that she is still bound in some way by previous decisions that were made by the commissioner. And because we have this situation where essentially 
the NFL can appeal this if they think that it's not enough. And there's a lot of reasons it's not necessarily in their best interest to do so because we've just established this new system and you are undermining your own system. Then if you appeal it and also you will probably end up in federal court, uh, kind of like what happened with Steve Elliott um, when he received the six game suspension, which was for one victim, by the way, or one accuser, I guess I have to say in a technical sense, not 24 of them. So that's a whole other thing, but really it, the fact that Goodell could, st- I mean, he doesn't even have to, appealing it isn't even really his last course of action. He can just step in and say, I'm overriding this. Or, you know, he could designate somebody like Troy Vincent, for example, and say, you know, my designee is going to override this. And yes, they will absolutely end up in court and it will be a terrible look for everyone. But ultimately, the power still resides with the commissioner. So it's sort of strange that it, it almost feels like this was then put in place on the NFLs and to kind of be an echo chamber based on the ruling that we got um, out of Judge Robinson. And the thing that's so bewildering about the specifics of the judgment, though I can kind of see some logic in her going for the precedent, though, like you said, she even says herself it's unprecedented. So her own logic in there is peculiar. And she was a copyright lawyer before. I don't know how they got to this being... The, uh, the disciplinary officer for this specific case. I know both sides agreed to it, but it was an unusual person to hand this case to in the first place. Um, she basically says throughout the report, he did it, the, the acts were egregious. One thing that I don't think has gone commented on enough during this, which I've tried to hammer home on this show, is the escalatory nature of his behavior. And she details that in there and basically says he did it, but and to the point of saying, for the love of God, do not allow him near non-club sanctioned masseuses for his entire career. That was not like a season-long thing. That's it now. He can never go to a, a non-club sanctioned um, therapist for any kind of treatment for the remainder of his career. But I'm just going to follow this precedent, which we don't even have. There is no precedent for someone having, what is at this point, 30 different different kinds of sexual misconduct accusations when you factor in the people who have said they don't want to come forward publicly, the people that Jenny Frentz is reporting independently verified. And I know that this disciplinary officer only heard five of the cases, but even as you said, scaling that up, as awful as it is to put in those terms from the Ezekiel Elliott case, it still doesn't fall within that precedent. Well, right. And I think that, and this is part of the problem and why we're all scratching our heads over the fact that this is a copyright attorney um, and not a family law or a criminal attorney or somebody with a background in something that might be relevant to this is that the the way that she is explaining the concept of precedent for his particular offense, it's like you said, she acknowledges that this was literally unprecedented she actually used the word in terms of what he had done in the scope of what he had done she acknowledges that he was escalating that he was a danger to others that he is damaging to the reputation of the league to himself to his team you know she agreed with everything they said the reason that she put it into this sort of specific basket with the things that she's using to establish precedent is because it was quote-unquote non-violent so i have a lot of issues with that statement um the biggest of which being that any sexual assault is violent um you know there was if we want to i believe the exact phrase used here was that he was touching women against their will and i think this is sort of one of those things that if you have not been a victim of this it is very hard to understand and i tried to talk to a lot of people off the record who have been in this situation who have had something like this happen to them And what I keep hearing over and over from every single woman and one man um, who was also a victim who I spoke to was, 
it's absolutely an act of violence. And every one of them said in a sort of very frank way, you know, when I asked them directly that, you know, you'd probably rather somebody just hit you than have something like this happen to you, which is a horrible question and a, a horrible thing to have to kind of decide on. But it does kind of hammer home the the sort of misunderstanding, I think, on her part. And again, we come back to the fact that you know, she's not somebody who is legally experienced in dealing with domestic violence or sexual violence victims, that she is considering this a nonviolent offense and that she is then setting up the entire punishment based on previous cases that have happened in the NFL for quote unquote nonviolent offenses. So Ray Rice, for for example, is off the table here. And partly that's because we had video there and we all know we're all beholden to the video camera as far as NFL discipline goes. But that was also because that technically meets the NFL's, and again, this is the NFL's definition. It's not the court's definition. It is the NFL's definition of what constitutes a violent act. And that's something that has broader ramifications beyond the NFL. You know, yes. That phrase was everywhere yesterday. Um, and I'm sure you saw the coverage on, on a number of league rights partners um covering this yesterday that sports journalists are not equipped to handle this it's 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 they're not good at this and i don't know why they don't just throw to people who are equipped for this and put them on tv for six hours to to talk it through that phrase that word and the, the implication that somehow he was exonerated when she found him guilty of everything and he was punished the punishment was obviously not fitting for the crimes, but he was punished and found guilty. And she agreed with everything the NFL laid out before her. And yet that phrase, um, I mean, stings is a, is an understatement. Oh, absolutely. Yes. And, and we're seeing it sort of, and I kind of want to stress the, the point that you're making about sort of who is covering this. And obviously as NFL reporters and, you know, anybody who is sort of plugged into sports media and especially the off-field stuff, of course, we're all going to talk about this, but it's sort of bothersome to me that you're not bringing in experts on stuff like this that is somebody who can speak on this in a non-football specific context to kind of take out some of the sort of misunderstandings that happen here. And also the side effect of a lot of people in the NFL who are just basically doing their job, who, who have to cover this and lay it out as it has happened, regardless of how they feel about it. It would give an opportunity, I think, for a little bit different perspective to help people understand it. I mean, we had like I saw a lot of reporting yesterday where people were using the word solicitation for what he did um, in an effort to compare it to what happened with Robert Kraft. And this is like incredibly inaccurate, um, no matter what you think about what Robert Kraft got himself into trouble for doing. There's a big difference between a consensual payment for services, whether it's legal or sexual or not, and somebody who was basically assaulting women against their will. But that was coming up a lot and being used as a sort of, well, this is an example of how players are targeted far more heavily than owners, which is something that in general I agree with. But it takes a whole element out of it through some kind of, I think, sometimes willful misunderstanding. And if you were to bring in people who are sort of more educated on this topic and speak on it, and quite frankly, who really don't care about the NFL or football or Deshaun Watson, 
in any sort of entertainment context would be able to come in and hopefully speak on this a little bit more coherently in terms of that sort of thing. And I don't know that it changes the minds of anybody who's just like a diehard Browns fan who doesn't care and just wants to win a Super Bowl and is willing to swallow just about anything in order to get there. But for the people who are just kind of misunderstanding the situation in terms of whether or not the punishment was fair, I think something like that might go a long way. I don't know how you can get across people anything more than the specific sentences in the report that says the sexualized contact was unwanted. It's right. Exactly. And they use the word assault in there, you know, even at my job, uh, the, the Guardian writing as a sport and culture writer with the greatest media lawyers in the land, you know, we were using sexual misconduct for the entire time because you don't want to go into the phrase of assault. They say assault in there, black and white, and that is what they believe has happened. And, and what was the most, uh, not the most, all of this is is obviously horrifying. The nonviolent part was the most egregious uh, issue, I thought, in the report itself but this kind of lack of understanding when you pair the nonviolence with what she wrote specifically in her report about what the women have told her and what she believes has happened after the fact right that's the thing is any kind of sexualized encounter that does not have consent is violence it is as simple as that and she says in the report that women are struggling to continue their profession now because of this they cannot go back into the workplace and they just cannot find work right and and this is the the problem with something like this it's very different from any kind of on-field altercation or anything like that that happens because this is and this is I guess one of those things where I wish people were better educated on sort of the aspects of being a victim of sexual violence and what kind of happens to you afterwards it's not just a matter of surviving the act it's not like for example getting mugged which of course can have its own sort of repercussions afterwards but it is a little bit different it's much more impersonal and i think that the the way that sort of this process is and i'm obviously not a therapist but my mother is a licensed psychotherapist so a little bit about this kind of stuff about the way that kind of like what happens to your brain uh when something like this happens to you and the way that you will process going forward and it can take people a really long time to even get to a point where they are kind of able to just function as like a human person going through life. And certainly to be able to do the job at which you were assaulted by someone previously is going to become difficult, if not impossible, without a lot of work on your part. Um, and as the victim, of course, the burden of that is on you. You know, you are the one who will go to therapy. You are the one who will have to deal with it in every aspect of your life, both personal and professional. And this was laid out in the, you know, the dig through these and keep rereading this report over and over and over from the judge. And who is, like you said, she's agreeing with everything the NFL is laid out there. And then everything she sort of comes back with explaining her own ruling kind of undermines those things in a way. And I, I know that there is a little bit of a disconnect where she is bound by only the information that was given specifically to the NFL. Um, she can't take into consideration in her ruling things that have happened outside of that. And she implied that she felt that the NFL was responding to public outcry um, in, in the sense that they wanted this much harsher suspension than the one she ultimately levied. And as a, you know, a, essentially a corporate lawyer by experience, which is what she is, that would make a ton of sense to think, okay, you know, this is not admissible, but there's a, a human element here that I think she really missed on in, in, the, in, in an effort to 
kind of follow the letter of the law, the, the spirit uh, of the situation uh, got completely lost in this. And again, that's where I think we come back to the way that this is interpreted by the type of law that she is used to dealing with. It would make a lot of sense if we were talking about a contract dispute. It does not make a lot of sense when we're talking about a huge number of women. And I would urge everybody to remember, too, that for however many come forward, there are twice that many who have chosen not to do so for their own personal reasons, because coming forward is its own hell uh, for women in these situations. So it is absolutely worse. And when you cut that down to the number of women who were brave enough and, and felt comfortable enough to come forward, and then you cut it down again to the number of women who were directly involved in speaking to the NFL, and only four women, I believe, uh, were were included sort of in the the process that happened here then if she is making a judgment based only on those four people then you are i think leaving a lot out of this that actually really really does matter to court of public opinion or not this is an entertainment product and the end user is that court of public opinion and it's something she needed to take into consideration and it kind of gets back into this weird swamp of how they set up this system between themselves because she's basically taking a bat to the construct of how Goodell did things before yet while agreeing with them with all the evidence they brought forward. So in one part of your brain, you want to say these reports that they only spoke to 12 women, that a lot of the women were off put by the investigators. That is its own bucket of wrongness. But then she did agree with the findings as maybe uh, not as wide ranging as that initial investigation from the league should have been. You would have wanted them to speak to every single person possible, obviously. Um, but she did find all that stuff accurate. That's why it's so difficult to comprehend that she, as you mentioned, almost lacked that human touch at the end of it. And I get she's supposed to be independent and independent arbiter, but you cannot tell me that she, you cannot be influenced by the fact that as you're doing the report, whether the league has spoken to people or not, the New York Times is reporting that there's 60 people here that he's visited. The, the Texans are settling with people who have never even been in the public domain. They have not spoken to Vrentis. They've not filed a civil suit anywhere, but the Texans were settling with those people. Right. And and there were also, you know, part of the reason why this kind of eventually drove forward and what ultimately sort of led him to settle, or at least what we believe may have partially led him to settle, was that when Jenny Brenta started interviewing people who had not filed a lawsuit, so they had nothing to gain financially from this, and it's horrifying that we even say, oh, well, now we're going to question her credibility because she's looking for compensation, but that's the way it works. But it did kind of convince a lot of people that, you know, we have more people coming forward on this and, and speaking to Jenny, who does a wonderful job and who really, really, I think, kind of broke this one open by putting that out there. That's another piece of this. And then we come back to the idea that the arbiter essentially said, your system is broken to the NFL. Like, this is a mess, which I think we would all agree with that, right? The NFL's disciplinary process and, and the way that they meet out punishments has been like ridiculous and inconsistent for pretty much as long as well, certainly as long as I have been in this business and probably a lot longer than that but she says that and then she ultimately defaults to well but I'm going to use what you used to do in the system that I just said was terrible as precedent and you know again you mentioned also that they're they're sort of bound by who they're able to interview and as somebody who actually did once um, early on in my career, end up interviewed by NFL investigators. And I was 
neither the subject of their inquiry nor a victim. I was more like a, a witness in this situation. It has something to do with a place where I used to work that had uh, uh, gotten into a situation with the NFL, but it was really intimidating and scary. And I was neither an accuser nor an accusee in this situation. And they were not um, pleasant to speak to. I'll put it that way. Um, so I cannot even imagine if you are in this situation and you are already scared and <laughs> terrified for not just uh, your own sort of mental well-being, but also your anonymity um, in some cases here in speaking to these people, like they're not great at handling even a person who is just there to, in my own experience, essentially is well as being asked about, you know, what was the practice at this place where you were employed regarding NFL video, it's the best I can do. Sorry, guys, I'm not allowed to say much about it. But, uh, you know, if, if I'm sitting there and thinking, oh, I'm terrified of these people and I, they, there's not even anything they can do to me, I'm not involved in this. I cannot even imagine what it would be like if you were in a situation like what these women are in dealing with these people. Like, they're not there to uh, make it easy for you, put it that way. <laughs> And you're talking about something so personally invasive with guys who are yes. FBI goobers, basically. That's who the league outsourced that, to. That's who they hire. Yeah, the guy I spoke to was a former yeah. FBI agent who had apparently been fired, I found out later, by the FBI for misconduct, who was now employed by the NFL and is no longer employed by the NFL at this point, which is the only reason I can say that. But yeah, yeah. Uh, they're, they're not there to, <laughs> yeah. This is an industry that cannot handle it criminally or civilly when it does the cases itself away from the National Football League. I mean, the country cannot handle uh, domestic violence, any kind of sexual abuse anyway. Um, and then to filter it through the people who are retired from that profession and not specialists in that, um, it's how they've got to that structure is, is mind-boggling. It's... Yeah, it's horrendous. I, you know, and if the NFL really cared about sort of how it was treating people on that end of things, then yeah, then you would see instead of these guys who I'm sure are, you know, great if they need to deal with something like find out if a player is gambling or betting against his own team or what have you, sure, fine. But in a situation like this, I, I, like you said, you know, America has a, a horrible response to these sorts of things. They're not good at handling this kind of stuff, even outside of football. But if you really wanted to kind of, it, even in a self-serving way, even if you're saying, well, the NFL doesn't really care about these women, of course they don't. I hate that that's true, but we know that they don't. But even in a self-serving context, if the NFL wanted a harsher punishment, then helping these women feel comfortable talking to them would have gone a long way towards that. We need to bring in somebody from at the very least, like an, an SVU unit or something like that. Somebody who is trained to speak to people who are in this situation, not just some guy whose entire job is, is basically to, to hunt criminals. And now he's going to vet accusers or victims in a situation that's very sensitive and it doesn't at all match with what they say they're trying to do. So I wanted to touch also on, on the Browns in this, who I've written about them a bunch, this whole controversy. I think they have skated on an awful lot of the flack on this. Obviously Watson is at the top of the pecking order for his actions and what is now from an independent judge has just said in the report that he's essentially been a sexual predator over the course of the last however many years. Um, 
and then the NFL has got it too, though that the, their investigation is ill-prepared as it was actually did do the job of proving to the judge and um, what happened the haslams the browns i'm sure you saw the statement they put out last night did you have an initial response to that statement i i feel sort of exhausted by the the browns and the way that they've handled this because it's it's horrendous it's the statement that they put out is exactly what i would have expected so this is the same group of people that did not speak to any of the victims did not try to contact Jenny Rentis or anyone else who had been involved in the investigative reporting and said, well, we've done our research and we believe in Deshaun Watson, the person. And that was it. And it's not, there has been absolutely no admission of guilt on his part. And as you've pointed out, yes, he is the problem. He is the person who is predatory. He's the criminal in this situation, but the Browns are incredibly culpable for what they've done here. And they are sort of echoing the remorselessness that, that he has put out there and the Browns and Deshaun Watson were all making statements to the effect of, well, he's going to fight this and he's innocent. And, you know, the Browns never, they were very careful to never actually use the words innocent. They just kept saying, we believe in Deshaun Watson, the person, as though that was his full name, Deshaun Watson, the per capital T, capital P, the person over and over and over again. They did not specifically say they believed in his innocence, which I think is kind of important here. Um, it's, <laughs> I understand the frustration um, for both Brown's ownership and the organization and the fans that no matter what they do, it just never goes right. And people are, are desperate to win. And it's a very, very strong fan base that has been very, very loyal in the past. And they want to get sort of off of the merry-go-round of, you know, the, we all know about the, the quarterback jersey that are right, that was sitting in the front office of an advertising agency in downtown Cleveland where they just added multiple names every year of everybody who had played quarterback for the Browns since the they returned as an expansion franchise after moving and turning into the Ravens. And it's, it's ugly. I mean, I'm sick of being made fun of and they're sick of being the team that just can't get it right no matter what they do. And that's all great and all, but like at what cost? I, I just think they have handled this absolutely horrifically from start to finish. Um, it, even coming down to the way they structured the contract, which I, I know there's a lot of noise coming out of Cleveland from a lot of fans who have, you know, air quotes, done their research saying this is how all contracts are set up or this is how many contracts are set up. But it's actually not true. Um, that type of contract structure is really common for teams that are up against the cap, which the Browns were absolutely not. So they absolutely did do it this way in order to facilitate an easier financial situation for Watson after the punishment. And that makes them, it's not that they're culpable in the acts that he committed. He did that on his own, but they are certainly culpable in his sort of unwillingness to repent and do his time for what he has chosen to do. And I've been back and forth with the Browns fans on this one. They throw that mm. at me. They send me the, the Denzel Ward contract. They tell me that Andrew Barry always wants to front load contracts. They do this all the time. They've never done this with someone accused of what this guy was accused of before they knew the full outcome of what he was accused on. And never, and I will, I will never not believe they handed him 
that level of signing bonus as a war chest to go settle everything before the season. That's what that was. And then you have Rusty Harden coming out saying, well, now everyone knows how much money he has. It makes it more difficult. He was handed that part of cash up front to go and make sure this went away as quickly as possible. The fact that it has now gone down this alley with the NFL was separate. And aside from that, they just wanted all of the civil suits wrapped up as quick as the Texans did it, which was like 48 hours after they were initially sued. That's what they were hoping for with that deal. You cannot convince any right thinking person otherwise that that was not structured specifically to make him have that money up front and then as you said to avoid any of the financial penalty that would come from a, a suspension it's absolutely the case absolutely the case and i have this business with well look at the denzel ward contract it's like well it's actually not an exact match um if you look at it closely there are other reasons for structuring it the way that they did there that are not in, <laughs> at all sort of in, in line with what happened with watson and as as you've pointed out what's most important is to do to structure this i mean i would love to hear anybody's argument for why the Browns, what would be the motive for the Browns to structure the contract this way otherwise? Because I keep hearing it compared to the Aaron Rodgers contract, but the Packers had a very specific reason for front-loading the contract for Rodgers that doesn't apply to the Browns because of where they are relative to cap space and the age of the player involved as well as the length of the contract. So it made sense in Rodgers' case there is no way that this makes sense for the Browns to do this this way if Watson is not in this situation. And this whole business of now everybody knows how much money has is ridiculous. Every NFL contract is public. We all know how much money they have. You know, this is right in there with the, you know, if you want to talk about the the Kyler Murray thing where the, the Cardinals and, and Murray's agent were, were all just outraged that everybody found out about this, oh, yes, four hours of independent study a week in order to, to prove he's serious about studying the playbook and whatnot. And his agent was, oh, my goodness, that should never have gotten out. Well, it was in the contract language. And it's actually not that hard to get the details of this stuff. So um, everyone knowing how much money he has was going to happen no matter what. The fact that people are taking an interest in how much money he has is a direct result of his own actions. And they put specific fine language in the contract. Yes. It wasn't like they just structured in a way where if you do get fined, we'll get you out of the fine. They put specific fine proof stuff in there. Did they put that in Denzel Ward's contract? Are they paying Denzel Ward's fines? <laughs> Right. Yeah, it's not Aaron Rodgers' contract either. Uh, the other one that keeps getting thrown out there. No, of course not. Yeah. <laughs> can we uh, return to that Haslam statement? I just want to read it just so the listeners at home, if they haven't caught it, can, can, can hear the words of what the Haslams wrote in a statement last night. They said, we respect George Robinson's decision and at the same time empathize and understand that there have been many individuals triggered throughout this process. We know Deshaun is remorseful that the situation has caused much heartache. That's kind of the, the key crux of the statement there. There's obviously a bunch wrong with that. I think the one that um you know the, the triggered word there is yes. insulting to the fact that we're talking about people here have been sexually assaulted um the numbers of which we have no idea actually how high the number is um but then the part about Deshaun being remorseful when he has specifically doubled down on the fact he's done nothing wrong he says he's never disrespected a woman not the specific woman any woman ever in his life he says he's never done anything wrong they've already said they've done their due diligence so uh, that, that is they just lied in the statement that's a lie Oh, it's a, completely a lie. I mean, it's he's been remorseful. It's no, he's been, if anything, the exact opposite of that. 
he is essentially saying, I'm being witch hunted. I've done nothing wrong. I'm the victim here. So there has been no remorse. I mean, they, they would have been better off, quite frankly, as gross as this would be, too. They would have been better off saying, well, we believe in his innocence, not he's been remorseful. And the problem, of course, is that he went out and settled those lawsuits. <laughs> so it's a little bit difficult. Um, and this is where I, I think he and the Browns have, have really gone wrong here. If it was possible to, to go wrong even more than they already had. Well, once you go out and start settling lawsuits like that, it's, it's typically considered an admission of guilt. And it doesn't necessarily mean that in 100% of cases, the person is in fact guilty. But it, they probably are realistically and that all of the evidence also says that they are i mean this was kind of a slam dunk in, in that way and the browns putting that out there was just absolutely it's a bald-faced lie and then to say we're sorry people were triggered is sort of like saying i'm sorry you're offended after saying something deeply offensive to somebody and you know triggered is is one thing if you're talking about something that is <laughs> for lack of a better way of putting it less traumatic you know when we talk about things like trigger warnings in in books we're saying hey you can choose not to read this book because this has content that might be upsetting for somebody who has some direct experience that relates to this or, or somebody who is sensitive about this issue but this isn't something that everybody can just ignore this is not you can't opt out of the browns if you are a reporter who, who covers the Browns and you are female. I mean, you can't really even opt out if you're an NFL fan, right? Unless you're just saying, well, I'm not going to watch football anymore. And if that is the intent, which it absolutely is not for either the Browns or the league, then, you know, you just, I mean, and this has been a problem with the Browns since long before Deshaun Watson, but I have a PR team there has let a lot of stuff come through. And this is certainly the most serious of it, but, you know, a couple of years ago, they they had a, a pretty bad incident that was luckily nothing like this, but essentially was sort of an attack on their fan base saying like, well, you don't know what you're talking about. We do. You're all idiots. And we know you're going to keep buying tickets. So we don't care what you think was the gist of it. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but that was the, the message that came through and they were heavily criticized for it. And they are still maintaining largely the same PR staff as they did back then. The same person is still in charge. And so keep asking the question, how on earth did this statement get out there? I mean, I realize it's you can only control an owner so much, whether you're the head of Brown's PR or not. But, you know, this is a repeat problem for them of just putting stuff out there that anybody who is an expert on spin, if nothing else, would go, oh, my goodness, stop, tear that up, start over. And this stench is throughout the organization. I mean, Kevin Stefanski spoke to reporters yesterday. One quote was literally, I have spoken to women. It's like, okay, you've spoken to women. Women exist and you've had words with them and they speak for all women. Yeah. Um, then he did clarify he's also spoken to women in the organization. Um, did not clarify where in the organization. Do they have a direct you know, contact point with Deshaun Watson? Um, and then he said he stood by the judgment, which means he is saying he is the head coach of the football team, stands by a guy who has been found guilty by an independent arbiter of sexually assaulting five women. It is they are acting as though he was exonerated Um and it didn't rise to a certain level when he was suspended. We all feel the suspension isn't isn't uh, harsh enough, but he was found guilty of this. Well, and I think that tells you a lot about the way that the Browns are looking at this. And there was a, a, a female reporter um, who was on the Browns beat um, from an Akron newspaper who made the mistake of calling it the first Browns victory of 2022. 
which is just absolutely horrendous. But I think that is very consistent with the way they're looking at that in the building. And Stefanski made, I, I think, a, a pretty big error there where he is saying that he stands by the judgment, but in his view, and in this, I think, expands the viewpoint of the Browns in general, that they're considering this a win, that, yeah, we stand by it because they don't really care that it's an admission of guilt. What they care about is that they got off pretty easy. Deshaun got off pretty easy considering what happened. So of course they're going to support the judgment, but it's, you know, Stefanski puts it out there and you're saying, I don't think you are delivering the message that you think you're delivering. And as for this business, if I've talked to women in the building, well, how many of those women had cause to be concerned that their job was no longer safe if they spoke out against this? And that's my first question that would go out there is there's a lot of incentive for women to be quiet about things like this, especially if you're in a position where you're probably not going to come into direct contact with Deshaun Watson, then it's sort of all well and good to say, oh, well, you could just quit and go get another job. Where? There's not another football team in town. You're going to move your whole family and hope that some other football team will hire you to do whatever it is that you do for that team. Like people can't just quit. And this is happening to a lot of women in the media too. I mean, I have tempered to an extent what I've said about this publicly because of this. Um, It's certainly not going to affect me professionally, but I think that's very different for the people whose job is to cover the Browns specifically, who are not technically on a national beat or part of a national media organization like I am, that they're dependent on their relationship with that team. And whether you work for the Browns or you work with the Browns or you have some kind of professional connection to the Browns or not, you have a lot of incentive, especially if you don't think you personally are going to have to come into contact with this guy to just say whatever, it's fine because the cost is too high for you. I hammer on this point all the time on the show about this is a workplace and people have to go into the business yeah. and that we talk about them often like they're characters in a TV show because it's a lot of people view it through social media and they stream the game and they're kind of off in that other place. These people have to go into the building. We're actually having after you on the show, an athletic trainer who's worked in these buildings before is going to come on to talk about that dynamic between um, particularly a star player and the training staff and what the impact of this will be, particularly with the specific language about around the therapy. But I mean, just to personalize it with you for a second, you mentioned that, I mean, if you're offered now a sit down with Deshaun Watson, it would never happen now because you won't be able to do a one-on-one sit down with any media member probably for a long, long, long time. How would that feel to you? Even if you were asked to come into the Browns building or you have to go into the Browns building to go to work, how is that going to feel? That's the thing is like, I, I don't think I have any questions for him that he would be willing to answer. So at the very least, at the very least, it's completely unproductive right? Because I'm going to sit there and whoever his handler is, is going to tell me this interview is over after one question. So it puts me in a position where I'm either tossing softballs at a guy who I don't even want to be in a room with. And like you said, we're assuming there's a third party in this room because he is obviously not going to be alone with any woman who is professionally connected uh, to the sport in any way from now until the end of his career. And I certainly would never be comfortable going into that situation given what's happened either. But yeah, sure. If, if hypothetically that's the situation, then I, to me, there is no interview, right? Because I'm not willing to sit there and, and ask him questions about, you know, how he's going to explain um, his, his thoughts on the way that the playbook was used a week ago when I have the opportunity to do what I should do, which is say, hey, you never answered for this. Let's let's hold you accountable. And then immediately that interview comes to an end. So it's, yeah, of course, I absolutely would be uncomfortable. But 
it also kind of prevents people, I mean, as much as we say this is for safety, to kind of protect people from him and, and not allow him to be in a situation where somebody might feel uncomfortable, it also protects him because it shields him from having to answer a lot of difficult questions. And yes, people can throw things like that out in a media scrum and they absolutely will and he will have to deal with that. But that's a little bit different than when you've agreed to a one-on-one -on -one sit down interview. It's a lot harder to duck a question under those circumstances. And now he's never gonna be in that situation. And he is more than ever insulated in this complete bubble now. I mean, it's the people around him. It's been that tight-knit team now for 24 months. You see him getting mobbed at the for autographs at Brown's training camp as if nothing ever happened, and he's just the star quarterback. It's 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 debilitating and exhausting in, in equal measure. Um, I guess next steps then, do you have any sense of what the NFL will do? I mean, they were signaling throughout this they also didn't really want to appeal but the reason they put the disciplinary officer in in the first place and they agreed to it was not to remove it from Roger Goodell's, um, you know, list of concerns because he can still, as we've said, override this whole thing if he wants to as long as he's willing to get into, you know, long-term litigation over a cause that, that he thinks he should. It was purely to give distance and mostly to the media, right? It's like if there's a case he wants to get involved in that he thinks could help him in some way and the, the Iron Roger persona, he can do that. But if not, he can throw his hands up and say, it wasn't me, it was the independent arbiter and we're moving on. So do you have any sense of which with this one is so toxic? And as you mentioned with the Browns, even in their negotiations with the NFL, the NFLPA, six to eight was their low end. They were willing to discuss eight themselves in a compromise, let alone all the way down to six. That's why there's the sense there it's a victory. And I just can't imagine that for something this egregious and he has every right within what the, the disciplinary officer has written to say, okay, you've given me that judgment based off five uh, cases and really it was the four. I know about all the 25 and the 20 others. And so I will add this on because of the 20 others. Do you think that's reasonable or do you think he'll just stand with the ruling? Well, it's tough. Um, you know, as you mentioned, part of the reason this was put into place is because he got, he came under so much fire for deflate gate essentially for saying because that entire situation became about how much power roger goodell had it didn't even have anything to do with whether tom brady was inflating or deflating footballs or whether anybody cared that he was doing that by the end it was all about a show of power from the commissioner and an, an indication that the players needed to recognize that in the cba they they ceded a certain amount of power in exchange for money and that power went to roger goodell so a lot of why this was created, as you kind of alluded to, is that it's a protection for Goodell, essentially, so that he's not necessarily on the front lines of it. But also, this is not what the NFL wanted, as far as we know. But the problem is, is that if the NFL appeals, it will likely end up in federal court. Um, and... There are a lot of, I mean, from there, it's just a, a web of possibilities. We don't even know what would happen. We, we don't even know if a judge would agree to hear it. That's the other thing, as it can't assume that you will be able to get a federal judge to agree to hear the case. They might just throw it out and say, absolutely not, not dealing with this. This is ridiculous. But if they do, that just continues the bad optics of this and drags it out. And, and the one thing I think the NFL doesn't want more than anything, is for this to be the story of the entire 2022 season. I mean, I throw it out there, too, that I don't think it's a coincidence that this Stephen Ross uh, repercussions, if we can call them that, those were very light as well, um, came out on the heels of this uh, because it's easier to kind of 
hide that in the shadow of Deshaun Watson, which was already out there anyway, if you kind of throw it all out there at once, because they don't want their season overshadowed by this kind of stuff. So they are incredibly demotivated from appealing this because it will just keep the spotlight on it. It will make the entire season about where are we at on the Deshaun Watson thing. So they would have to feel so strongly that that punishment was not enough. And realistically speaking, the NFL doesn't really care about that. They only care about how it looks. They, they're, no, they're not concerned about the victims. They're not really even concerned about the fans, because as we have seen from the reaction from Browns fans, as gross as most fans other places think it is, the hometown fans, for the most part, have not gone anywhere. There are very, very few of us that said, you know what, I'm not rooting for this team anymore. So they just want this to go away. So that goes a long way towards putting the NFL in a position where it really doesn't serve their greater interests to go in and appeal this, whether they agree with it or not. And from Goodell's point of view, from the PR standpoint, which I hate that we have to discuss that, but that's how they're, they're thinking of it in the building. I mean, for him, he can just throw his hands up and say, I tried, you know, and it, right. you know, it's going to get mired in an illegal quagmire. Like you say, if he gets to stay, that means he's playing week one. I don't want him on the field week one. And, you know, I, I, we did our job. We recommended it. And that's why this, this process is in place. Um, you mentioned before it, I mean, we don't need, we didn't need any more evidence, but we have just a further confirmation that the NFL does not care about women. Where does the NFL not caring about women, where will that rank on Roger Goodell's epitaph once he's finally done in probably six years? Or will we all just move on to Lombardi's and touchdowns and, and the meat shield of the players playing? Well, I, as much as I wish it were different, um, I, I think that in hindsight, Unless things change a lot or unless something happens that kind of forces him out that relates to this, which feels supremely unlikely, um, because I mean, look what happened with Ray Rice. I, if we go back to that, you know, he meets out a two-game suspension. People are furious. Then all of a sudden, the NFL, which, by the way, always had access to that video, they just chose not to acquire it um, from the casino that had it. And there was a lot of public outcry. So they went and got the video. And then they said, well, now that we have video, we can do this. And then we get the heavy suspension. But the real reason that that happened is because Goodell was essentially in danger of losing his job over that. And more so certainly than Deflategate and absolutely more so than this. So he is protecting himself and putting himself in a position where, as you said, he can kind of throw his hands up and say, I tried. Now, how this is going to look later um is a little bit difficult um i i will be honest and this is not something I, I i hate that i have to say this but five years ago i would have been a lot more likely to tell you that i thought that history would not look fondly upon him for the way that sort of he steered the sport in terms of the way that it treated women and treated its female fans and so forth but the the way that the things are going in america right now is, is sort of horrifying in a general sense in that regard and now i'm not so sure that that's how that will go. There will always be people who will be outraged about this and who will look at Roger Goodell through a very negative lens. But culturally speaking, we're in a really different place now than we were even when the Ray Rice incident occurred. And it's not really headed in the right direction for people to be cognizant of and upset by the way that the NFL has, well, essentially said, that's nice. Here's a pink jersey. Okay, we will end on that sad, yet realistic note. Samantha Bunton, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for having me, Ollie.
Okay, happy to have on the line now Gina Kelly from SB Nation. Gina, thank you for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to start with your kind of big picture thoughts. I know you've been covering this Watson story through its entirety. Um, yesterday was not the final resolution, um, but was obviously the, the most um, impactful day in terms of his uh, place in the league. There's a lot to dig through in the report, which I'm sure we can get through throughout the conversation. But what was kind of your macro sense of what happened yesterday? Um, after I, you know, initially before I read the full 16 page report, um, my immediate response, just seeing the snippets about how she did establish from the evidence presented that sexual assault was committed by Watson, but she said that it was nonviolent. And that was very frustrating to me because um, I don't see how sexual assault can ever be nonviolent, you know, any kind of non-consensual sexual uh, behavior is violent, in my opinion. Um, but after I read the whole thing, I felt like Judge Sue Robinson really took a, a pretty measured approach to this. And when you look at the way that she applied what the NFL has in the CBA and what the NFL presented as their case, I feel like she made some, I, I feel like her decision was um, fair. I all along have expected a six game suspension for Watson. This is, I mean, even though it's an overwhelming number of accusations, it is his first offense like this. He is technically a first-time offender. That is the baseline that the league established several years ago after the Ray Rice debacle as the baseline suspension for a first-time offender. So I think that that makes sense. Um, in reviewing the evidence, she found that he did commit sexual assault, that he did do harm to these women, and did establish that he did um, essentially cause harm to the reputation of the National Football League. Um, I do think that, you know, the NFL was initially asking for a full season suspension, and the rationale that she provided for not doing that was essentially that she said something along the lines of, you know, it may be appropriate for a longer suspension for this type of sexual assault, but she didn't think that that was um, an equitable thing to do unless that were specifically communicated with the players that it would affect. Uh, so I, while I still think that a, a more severe punishment was probably warranted, I think that with the way that the current CBA is written, I don't think that it was possible. So overall, you know, I, I feel like uh, she as an independent arbiter did a, did a good job with it uh, based on the evidence that was presented. I think that the NFL and talking to the attorney representing the accusers, I think that they could have certainly done a more thorough job of investigating this. They only talked to a handful of the accusers. Um, you know, I think that teams absolutely could have done more due, just due diligence. None of the teams that were competing to trade for him back in March or whenever that was spoke to any of the accusers or even attempted to. Um, but overall, I, for one thing, I'm glad that there is some kind of an answer or a starting point for what we can expect to happen with Watson this season. Um, and yeah, I, I, it's just such an unfortunate situation across the board. You know, I, I think that this could have been handled a lot better by the league. I think he probably should have been placed on the commissioner's exempt list when the accusations first came out, but he wasn't. He sat out last year voluntarily from the Texans. And so, yeah, I mean, I, the Browns structured his contract in such a way that he won't even really take much of a financial hit this year. So it certainly has worked out, I think, as well as possible for him, which was not my top priority in the whole thing. But um, overall, I think that Sue Robinson did a good job with the situation. She certainly, I mean, she took a bat to the league. Um, she has basically outlined that Deshaun Watson, in her mind, through what she investigated, is 
a serial sexual assaulter by the lead mm-hmm. and we've had as media entities tons of discussions of how do you characterize this what sexual misconduct versus sexual assault and you want to be really careful with those specific designations yes. she said that she accepted it and yet the she's fallen back on a precedent that we've never actually had someone have that number of cases no absolutely not and i do think that they probably could have justified taking stronger action against him simply because of the large number of accusers. And I'm just going to level with you. I think that if this had been a player who's not a starting quarterback in the National Football League, if this had been, you know, somebody's third string wide receiver, they would be indefinitely suspended. And I do think that that's something that the NFL probably needs to consider because that's not equitable. You cannot dole out different punishment for a star player than you would for some guy that, you know, most fans haven't even heard of if there's similar circumstances. So that was a little bit frustrating. And one thing that I did note um, related to that is that part of her decision was that he is not allowed to seek outside massage therapy for the duration of his NFL career. And I think that that stipulation speaks volume. It is. It's the real incongruous part of the report is she basically says he did it. I know he did it. You didn't tell him he can't do it in the CBA, which is a, you know, mind bending thing. Just as a human, you're like, he had to be told that he couldn't do commit sexual assault. What she's saying is the punishment is not written down in the CBA in the, in the personal conduct policy. And she specifically goes at them for saying, you make this stuff up on the fly as you go, depending on, as you said, how it's always how famous is the accused more so than what is the accusation. Uh, you just mm-hmm. want the, the shrapnel and the blowback of these things coming to your league, which is a fair and valid point until you get to 30 accusers and who knows how many have not come forward in some form of fashion. There's been independently verified people who have not actually gone public because of the fear of repercussions for themselves. So all of her kind of logic makes sense. And I, I'm happy that she's saying to Lee, come up with a true policy, get down with experts, take this off your hands, hand it off to an independent body, whatever it is, and figure out a real plan for how to address this issue. And she's saying, don't use this as one single scapegoat to try and catch the media cycle on essentially the back of me too. But then you mm-hmm. contrast that with 30 accusations. And it feels like the wrong time to be doing the, it's almost like the one time I'm like, can we go back to Roger Goodell when he was judge and jury for this one? Yeah. And that's the thing, you know, obviously with what leaked out from the NFL about the fact that the league wanted a full season suspension. Um, yeah. I think that if it had just gone to Goodell and it's going to be interesting because apparently if the league does appeal Um, her decision, then it does go to Goodell. And then he just gets to unilaterally decide. And again, you know, in this case, I think that the number of accusers, you know, it's a very serious situation. Um, So I I think that whatever they end up doing as far as punishment is probably going to be, you know, appropriate. But um, in general, I think that that's just a very bad practice. I do not think that Roger Goodell should have the final be all end all say on these things. Um, So yeah, it's, all kind of a mess even within that provision which allows him to to be the uh, he appeals to himself then he hears the appeal he's said off the record essentially the nfl be i'll assign a designee as though Mm -hmm. vincent isn't going to listen to what the guy who appealed to him who is his boss (laughs) will tell him it's it's, it's a mangled mess that they can only have agreed to to remove his kind of liability in the public whenever he doesn't want it so if one says 
you know, I don't want to be involved in this one. Oh, blame the arbiter. It wasn't my decision. But if he does want to be involved one because he thinks he can get some kind of PR score out of hammering a player, then that's when he'll step in. Yeah, and you know, one thing, and this is, I think, interesting in light of um, the news about the Dolphins that came out today related to the lawsuit filed by Brian Flores. Um, You know, I feel like the Dolphins owner is getting essentially a slap on the wrist for, uh, you know, trying to throw games, essentially. And one of the strategies of the NFLPA and Watson's um, process here with Judge Sue Robinson, they're Basically, focal point was, why are you going to issue that severe of a suspension for a player when you are not holding owners to the standard? Owners are getting, and I mean, there's not a comparable situation with owners, but we have seen, you know, like there was a whole massage situation with Robert Kraft, um, you know, various things here and there. And I don't think the owners are being held to the same standard as players. And I think that that is kind of a mess. Uh, the owners will flee to the high seas on a yacht to avoid some peanuts, <laughs> which a uh, backup tackle cannot do. <laughs> you know, they can no. hit the <laughs> um, On Watson, we're now left in a situation where he, his camp, the Browns included, are taking this as some kind of victory lap, even though he is still suspended. And the findings of the report say that he is a sexual assaulter by the league standards. That is a very uncomfortable situation down to Kevin Stefanski saying publicly he accepts the findings of the report, which means he's accepting that his st- they're not fighting back and saying, no, that's wrong. We still believe he's innocent. They're mm-hmm. saying, yeah, we accept the findings that our starting quarterback now has sexually assaulted five women that were brought forward. The, the, the league, as you mentioned earlier, only put forward 12. They said now Tony Busby said they actually only spoke to 10. They didn't really speak to 12. There's mm-hmm. any other accusers out there. And yet they're accepting six as some kind of victory lap. And, you know, one of the things that uh, jumped out at me yesterday, the, the Haslam's issued a statement. And in that statement, they mentioned that, you know, Deshaun has remorse for what, that he has shown remorse for what he did. Well, Sue Robinson explicitly says in the report, he's shown no remorse. And so again, like, what are you doing? <laughs> People have seen that he has no remorse like he's been very very vocal about that he does not think that he did anything wrong and if he is aware that he did anything wrong he really doesn't seem to care and what we're left with is a guy now who's had more rewards than consequences for what he did you know i think people forget the browns were he he said no to the browns on a friday night they came back with the most the grossest contract in the issue of the league in terms of the structure specifically designed to one, be a war chest to settle civil suits and two, to inoculate him from any kind of fine. And then just the fully guaranteed portion that is the highest ever done. Even Kyler Murray, the guys coming after Lamar Jackson, they can't even touch the figures of guaranteed money this guy got. So he basically sat out a season, a shadow ban, got paid for that one. And mm-hmm. then is now getting six games to rest up, make a playoff run and get paid the biggest contract in the history of pro football. Yeah. Uh, that's, none of that feels like consequences to me um and obviously i cover the falcons i was very upset when the falcons attempted to trade for him but i do just want to just hearken back to that whole situation because he made the falcons think that he was going to atlanta and they made complete fools out of themselves um and that was all driven by the owner arthur blank that was he wanted a local guy he thought that that would get backsides and seats in mercedes-benz stadium um, I disagree. I think you put a better product on the field and that will happen. But I just didn't think that Deshaun, in terms of the cap space they had available 
or and anything else, the, the talent that they would have had to build around him at that point, none of it made sense for the Falcons, but they were willing to debase themselves for a man facing that many allegations of incredible allegations of, of sexual misconduct. It just absolutely blows my mind. The thing that I think was the, I mean, all of that was tasteless to use the kindest word was that he made them go to him. He pitched up in an office block and he said, you come and bring it. They all brought presentations and they brought pizza mm -hmm. and, you know, they, they rolled out the red carpet for him. Uh, oh, the yes. Atlanta folks said that was the way that it was described. And I was just so angry that entire time. And all of them, you know, they should all face questions for this, by the way. The Browns are getting it good, which they absolutely should. They still have refused to answer any questions. They say they do their due diligence. Where is that report? Why is that not involved in the NFL's investigation? I have no idea. All of those teams who went to that meeting were happy to fly there. There was loads who asked, by the way, who were not invited to the meeting. They should all be placed on the record about this too, about what they knew when they went into that meeting. Absolutely. Uh, one thing about the Browns that stood out to me, um, their due diligence included speaking to women in Deshaun Watson's attorney's office, speaking to their own wives and daughters, who they claim were all fine with this. And they claimed that they didn't want to speak to any of the accusers for fear of being accused of witness tampering. Now, witness tampering, and I mean, I don't know what it's like over there, but in the U.S., you would specifically have to try to intimidate or coerce somebody to not testify or not pursue their case. Why would you be worried about witness tampering if you just want to talk to these people to ascertain the facts of the situation? That does not make any sense to me. No, and... It it could even be as simple as taking down prepared statements. Obviously, you'd have a third party mm -hmm. in the room. It is a nonsense to try and justify their own behavior. Down to Kevin Stefanski, yes, it had a Michael Scott of all Michael Scotts. He said, I have spoke to women. It's like, oh, <laughs> it's women who exist on planet Earth. He has spoken to them. They exist. You know, the, the, apparently they have rights in his mind and he spoke to them. <laughs> wow. I, I, I don't know. You know, I've said this before um, in another interview, the NFL media ecosystem is not in any way equipped to handle this. And we yeah. as a collective have shown our faces on this one. We've not listened enough. We've not got the right experts in to either educate us as a collective to then discuss it or just as portion out time to say, you go on air and we'll just keep replaying it when we need to throughout the day. This whole world is happy to say we have a resolution He'll be back for Monday Night Football, and let's just move on. And the thing that I can't stop thinking about, and, and I may have a different perspective on this as a woman, as a mother of daughters, um, but the thing that I can't stop thinking about are the number of these women who brought forward allegations against Watson who are afraid to continue their careers in massage therapy. Some have developed like mild agoraphobia. They have trouble even leaving their homes. Um, some have left that field altogether. They've just abandoned their plans to build that business. And I keep going back to one specific thing that came out in Jenny Brentis's reporting. And that was that Deshaun, when he reached out to one of these women, told her that he selected her based on her photos on Instagram because he wanted to support black business. And that to me just feels very exploitative. Um, you know, it's, it's more difficult for black women in America than it is for white women. That's just a reality. And so I love the idea of supporting black business, but he used that to manipulate her. And that has really stuck with me and it, it genuinely upsets me.
And that folds into the report where it said more egregious conduct than they've ever before investigated. And if you can go down through Ezekiel Elliott, Greg Hardy, and you have mm -hmm. what the level that rises to to say more egregious than anything that has ever been reviewed by this league, this league? More egregious than Greg Hardy throwing his girlfriend on a futon covered with guns. I mean, that was pretty nuts. Um, and so, yeah, but when you're talking about this number of allegations and yeah, I mean, each one seemed like, you know, it was maybe just, you know, little things here or there. Oh, that could have been a mistake. Oh, that could have been a misunderstanding. But when you look at the preponderance of the evidence, these sworn statements and, and the similarities between these women's accounts, I don't know how you don't believe them. And our listeners will have heard me say this a lot, but one thing that's extra extra troubling moving forward with this is one as you've said before he showed no remorse in fact he's made himself the victim classic abuser behavior mm -hmm. now being given all of the money possible for someone doing what he does he's been given all the, if you work out the valuation of what he's been given they basically gave him like one fourteenth of the franchise so he now is the franchise mm -hmm. for four years he has the backing of the owner and the owner's daughter and his behavior was escalatory in nature. He was not, you know, there was not big breaks in his behavior. That it was ramping up and getting more and more. Um, I don't want to. I don't even know how you would probably phrase it. The lawyers would probably send me a text, but it was <laughs> escalating in nature as this mm -hmm. went along. And he has not said at any point acknowledged he's got an issue, even the bare bare minimum of a fake statement. And now we just empowered this man who clearly has. A serious problem. I lived in Gainesville, Georgia when I first moved to Georgia 16 years ago. And so I was, that's where Deshaun went to high school. And um, I can tell you that when he was growing up, you know, he was such a special talent. He was such just a joy to watch. I mean, he was so talented and he got a pass on pretty much everything. You know, he has always been so talented. He has always been a sought after athlete. Um, and he's been able to get away with anything that he wants to do. Nobody ever holds him to any kind of standards. And that when you live your life that way, when you never face any consequences for anything, and you feel like you are allowed to do whatever you want to do, sometimes it leads to things like this. And I think that it's really difficult to pull somebody back from that and help them understand that you, like, you can't treat people like this. And it's the juxtaposition between him getting the biggest contract in the history of the sport. And as you mentioned in the report, again, George Robinson states that one of the women told her that she can no longer practice the trade mm -hmm. and that that was substantiated, that that is a real thing. She, since that appointment has not worked in the industry anymore. So she is just out of her livelihood and he's going to go and throw touchdowns on Sundays and he will get cheers. And these women have, and I, I mean, most of them have remained anonymous, which I respect uh, because I see these replies. I see the replies that people have sent to me on Twitter about this case, and it's absolutely disgusting. Um, so these women have really, you know, obviously they went through the initial encounters, which is bad enough, but then to have your reputation and your, you know, it, it, who you are as a person dragged through the mud, they've been accused of being sex workers. You know, they've been accused of just trying to get money. I, I just, my heart really goes out to them. It took a lot of courage to, to pursue uh, the civil action against him. Um, and I am very sorry for all of the, all of the things that they've had to endure in the process. And then even in this morsel of validation, the bare, bare minimum for them, it's spun as a victory for him, leading local columns saying the first win of the season 
uh, because he got six games proving he was a sexual assaulter. Yeah, and I, I saw one of my friends retweet that headline and said, if the Browns are the winners here, who are the losers? Is it the women? Yeah, it sure is. And so, yeah, that framing is just really gross also. In general with the NFL, we did not need this one to tell us they do not care about women. As uh, I'm sure we spoke about with the owners, you have three or four currently active publicly, publicly among 32. That's a really high clip. And you can do the math, Mm -hmm. the, the stuff that is not in the public domain. Where does this leave the league? I mean, you cover the league as a reporter, then you watch as a fan. And it's an entity says, we know it doesn't matter if we don't care about you. It's not just that they don't care. It's that they know it doesn't matter because he'll yeah. on Monday Night Football. And that's the thing. And, you know, I, I grew up in Ohio, so I have a lot of friends who are Browns fans. And it's been really interesting to see the split. So it seems about 50-50 with people that I know. And about half of them are like, I'm never going to support this team again. And the other half are like, oh, well, he's good at football. And I... I don't know. I think that that says a lot about uh, a lot about American society in particular. Um, but yeah, it is genuinely disappointing. And I don't know what would ever make them care about women. Women in the United States, we make up more than half of the population. We control most of the buying power uh, these days. And that's been, it's been that way for the past, I think, about 20 years. And so I, it's, it's amazing to me that they don't care more about women because we actually watch this we love the sport. We spend money on the sport. We are the ones who control that purchasing power. So I don't know that there is anything because money is the only thing that could change their mind. And women already control that uh, for the most part, uh, you know, a majority of the purchasing power in the United States. So I don't think anything will ever change that. Where do you think Goodell probably has, what's he got three years left in his deal? And he's saying he's going to do one, one more deal, which is going to be small one, I imagine. So let's say six, seven mm-hmm. years. Where will this, in the running order, will this just end up being, not this specific, but the treatment of women? We go back to Ray Rice, you mentioned Greg Hardy, all of that that, that era of scandal, essentially. Will, will that even factor in, or will the first thing be the TV deals, which will by then be trillion-dollar revenue, NFL Plus at that point, and you know, he took them into the streaming age? Am I being cynical by thinking that those things are going to end up before the fact that he clearly did not care about women? No, and I'm going to point out one more revenue stream for the NFL that I think helps to prove my point here. So sports betting. Obviously, the NFL remains separate from it for a long time to preserve the integrity of the game. But now they're taking money hand over fist from this industry. And still, they suspended Calvin Ridley for a full year for betting on games while he was away from from the Falcons last year. Now, I understand why because the integrity of the game does matter. And if you jeopardize fans' belief in the integrity of the game, you're jeopardizing your entire sport. But is that really worse than sexually assaulting 24 plus women? The league apparently thinks so. And that's really troubling. And I do not think that that will change. I I really don't. I don't see what could make it change. And it's no surprise that... As you mentioned, they do the Stephen Ross. I don't know if you call it a news dump, a news cloud, whatever you would do to really secondary news where you call it one of the other and say you got to take one for the team. Today's the day we're announcing to cover up all that stuff we did yesterday. And that that has a one day further suspension than Deshaun Watson. You couldn't write that. 
who no. is the PR strategy where you say let's make yeah, let's make it particularly one day that the fact we're saying he didn't tank games even though we kind of are saying he did but if you call the New England Patriots quarterback or host him on your yacht or whatever went down there then that is a day worse than all of these accusations and I think that the fact that Tom Brady is not going to be impacted by any of this, even though he was clearly involved, I think that that goes back to the thing that they will protect their best players. Um, you know, they, I mean, def- Patriots fans, my husband is one, but, you know, they would say, oh, deflate gate, deflate gate. And I agree that was an overreach in my opinion. But um, yeah, I also think that the Patriots had won so much, the league had to kind of, you know, give a little bit. Um, but yeah, the fact that they're not doing anything with him, he is one of the league's most popular players. He's one of the best quarterbacks this league has ever seen. So, you know, who cares if he participated in tampering? Um, no, no consequences. So I guess the last thing for us is what next steps happen. I mean, the league will have to sit down and decide, do they really want to be in this uh, environment? You know, if they're being told by a disciplinary officer, the reason I did this is because of the protocols you've laid out and that you followed before, well, then they're going to have to go and collectively bargain new protocols. There was a troubling language in there about the nonviolent, which is just not a thing in sexual assault Mm -hmm. cases. So they're going to have to rewrite that portion of the collective bargaining agreement. And she is right that they have regularly just kind of figured it out as they go along, responding to whichever scandal comes up. And they've never just sat down and sat with a group and said, please lay out a policy for us, which by the way, with the concussion crisis, they called up a group in Australia. They said, you send us all the protocols. The next day they put inputted them into their system. Those are their protocols, right? They, they know how to do this. They make all this money. They know what they're doing. Is that the next step you think they, they convene, uh, 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 a board of experts to help them lay out real protocols? So what's kind of interesting to me is that they did this after the Ray Rice thing, and they actually did it again during Ezekiel Elliott's drawn out, you know, suspension and appeal process. Um, I interviewed one of the women who was involved in that, and it was fascinating. You know, she actually runs a nonprofit that supports women who are victims of domestic violence, women and children, and it was really fascinating. And the one thing that stood out to me was that I asked her, you know, do you feel like they're taking what you shared with them and that they're going to apply it going forward? She's like, I don't know. They didn't. And they, I mean, they, again, they've continued to just be really inconsistent with these types of uh, suspensions with discipline around any kind of sexual violence, domestic violence, anything like that. And so, yeah, I mean, again, I, I think that they like to just kind of respond to things in the moment because it keeps them off the hook for having a policy and it gives them flexibility to treat players of different status differently in the disciplinary process and i think that that's fundamentally wrong but i think that it is very quietly a priority for the national football league okay then we'll wrap that up there i I apologize we had to do the podcast under these these circumstances (laughs) i thank you for coming on we'll have you back on at the start of the season hopefully when maybe there'll be something to discuss with the falcons because kyle pitts is really 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 good and we can just do an hour on kyle pitts if you prefer I love that. And I think that they'll improve this year. They should be at least fun to watch, even when they mess up their fun to watch. So I would love to come back. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. Have a great day. Okay, I'm delighted to be joined on the line now by Rachel Hearn, who is an athletic trainer who's worked at all different levels of football, including at Texas A&M and big time college football. Rachel, thanks for doing this. Thank you for having me. 
So I wanted to just get your perspective as an athletic trainer on the Deshaun Watson of it all. It's a perspective that I think is often uh, left out of the discussion when it comes to the NFL in a number of different ways. It is obviously specific now to the Watson situation, given what was in the ruling yesterday. But I want to start just before we get to Deshaun Watson. If you could just outline for the listeners the general role of an athletic trainer. So generally, we're the kind of day-to-day medical professional. So every team will have their team physicians, but the day-to-day personnel will be the athletic trainers. So we're the ones that run on the fields um, during games or practices when they get hurt. But we're also in the athletic training room, kind of doing that rehab, doing that treatment, just to make sure that they're at peak performance. And it's also kind of like a cultural hub when people treat people, uh, athletic trainers, right? Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of the guys like to come hang out, um, particularly before practice, um, because it's either that or the locker room. So there always seems to be guys around. So in the Deshaun Watson ruling, one of the standout points was that he can no longer see any sort of therapist, trainer, any sports medical professional outside of someone who is affiliated with the club. So they have to be on staff with the Browns to be able to treat Deshaun Watson. Um, What was your perspective on the ruling in general and on that part specifically? Well, when I heard kind of the ruling, I immediately thought the obvious consequence was Deshaun Watson can't be around women. Um, He is now their franchise quarterback. He will be there for, I think, five or six years, uh, definitely. Um, and he can't be around women. So that means there can be no women in that building now. Um, That is something that has been around and has been a problem for a long time. There has been consistent barriers, particularly in football, um, whether that's we've never played the game, so we couldn't possibly understand what these athletes need. Uh, We can't be in the locker room because it would be weird, even though I don't need to be in the locker room to do that job. Um, just constantly barriers like this and, and particularly with the Me Too movement that kind of added this extra, you know, being cautious about, well, if we have a woman in the building, we're kind of opening ourselves up to issues, whether that's her showing extra interest in the players or a woman accusing them, whether it was a correct or incorrect accusation. It's just always been a risk that teams have been hesitant to take um and so the the um browns will now not be taking that risk at all and this comes after the league has had some progress in the shadows uh there's more athletic trainers now female athletic trainers than there has been at any time so what are the implications of this moving forward it just feels like we're moving backwards. I remember in 2017 when I had been kind of thinking about pursuing the NFL, I think at the time there were maybe seven female athletic trainers um, total in the league. Now in a sports medicine team, there tends to be, we'll say between five to seven. Some have a couple, you know, a few less, some have a few more, but I would say on average it's between five and seven. Currently, there's 16 teams that have female athletic trainers now, which is phenomenal. It's a lot more than it's ever been. Um, But only two of those teams have more than one athletic trainer, a female athletic trainer. So, you know, we were absolutely proving our worth, um, proving that we can be there, that we do belong in that space. And I I just feel like this is a a huge barrier that's just going to continue to justify going back to that old behavior and those old hesitancies.
and has the potential to not just finish at Watson, right? If someone else is accused of something similar and there's a similar ruling that comes down for them that they can't work with outside people or it's a separate ruling that says they cannot work with any women in the facility because they've had a sexual misconduct allegation. It's another thing where it would be easier from the club perspective to just say we don't hire the women rather than having to put up all those different workarounds. It's just always been the easy out. It has always been easier to blame the woman. Um, and that is something that I've experienced personally. It's something that I have watched as a certified athletic trainer with students and particular female students working under me. It has consistently been when a male has inappropriate behavior, whether that is sexual misconduct or just that he's, you know, messing around at practice and not paying attention. Um, that has always or has consistently been the female in the room's fault. It's just easier to remove that distraction is what we're consistently kind of called or believed to be. It's easier to remove that. It's just one less thing for the coaching staff to have to think about. It's easier for the, the teams to not have to worry about it. And we have fought so hard to remove that barrier for this to just, you know, be a legally binding excuse as to why we can't have women in the athletic training room now. Rachel, thank you for coming on and sharing your perspective. Thank you so much for having me.